of opening up God's Word uh, this morning, the real privilege of being involved in the leadership of the church here at CBC. What an appropriate song uh, to sing, given our text uh, this morning. In royal robes, I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be wearing royal robes, and let me suggest today, neither do you. And yet still, and yet still, God invites us to serve him. God invites us to walk with him. Well, for the past couple of weekends, we've spent some time thinking about the Old Testament character of Samson. We thought a bit about how God gave him strength and how God gave him an excellent upbringing. Uh, He had brilliant parents. But two, we've spent some time thinking about his wrestles in life, his wrestles with lust, his wrestle with an overinflated sense of entitlement, and two, his wrestle with pride. Now, if you missed last weekend, you will have not known that Samson perhaps tried to marry a woman who worshipped a false god. She was a Philistine woman, and the Philistines were God's sworn enemies. We concluded that Samson's gravestone could well read, a strong man with a dangerously weak will. A strong man with a dangerously weak will. And last weekend, it was anger which was the emotion that concluded our scripture reading in Judges 14. And this weekend, anger is the dominant theme which journeys into Judges chapter 15, uh, which is where where we're going to be anchoring our message today. As we rejoin the message this morning, Samson has been double-crossed by some Philistine companions whilst they were on his stag do. Can you imagine being tricked on your stag do uh, by these people who'd become your friends? You might remember they made a stupid wager over Samson's equally stupid riddle, and Samson ends up calling his bride a heifer. He really did call her a heifer, and as we discover from our scripture reading today, it was Samson's father, his father, who ends up giving his bride away in marriage to someone else who was at the wedding party. Because of Samson, even that marriage doesn't end too well either. It's gripping stuff, isn't it? I don't know if you like uh, Coronation Street or EastEnders, shame on you, Uh, but this is more gripping even than those uh, shows. Now, I should warn you this morning, if you're wired with a slightly sensitive disposition, then be warned, Judges 15 does not make for pleasant warning. It's got a PG rating, so I hope you've got your parents here with you uh, today. Well, let's open up our scriptures. Judges 15, if you've got a Bible, please do um, turn to it. We're going to be dipping in and out of the text, so do keep the passage open. It says this, later at the time when of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. I mean, that's just a strange sentence, isn't it? He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and he caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. And then he fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing corn of the Philistines. He burned up the stocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and the olive groves. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timonite son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear I will not stop until I get my revenge on you. 
He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. So Samson ends up hiding in a cave because fueled by his anger that was in chapter 14, which spills into chapter 15, Samson goes off and takes the effort of grabbing 150 pairs of foxes, tying their tails together, putting a torch between each, lighting them, and then letting them loose on the Philistine crops. I mean, can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine that uh, it would have just been an awful sight, not able to call out Dorset Fire Brigade? Can you imagine the chaos? It's funny, isn't it, that this bit of the story is never, ever in the children's illustrated Bibles. I wonder why. Now, not surprisingly, the Philistines are furious, so they go off and they kill and they burn the woman who should have been Samson's wife and her dad and her family. Oh, dear. You see, the ripples of Samson's sin are continuing to impact the lives of countless other innocent people. It's a bit like dropping a pebble into the middle of a pond. The ripples continue until they hit the edge of the pond, and then eventually they rebound back to the center. Sin always does that, always. It goes to the edges, and then it bounces back. I think it's quite safe to say, isn't it, that Samson is a man who's got some life issues. But hey, who doesn't have any issues in life? That wasn't a rhetorical question. I don't see any hands going up. We all have issues. And of course, Samson's greatest issue is that anger has become his number one default emotion. In fact, anger is the negative emotion that drives so many of us. Let me give you a for example. I'm quite self-aware. I don't mind sharing this. If someone embarrasses me, I will rarely feel embarrassed and go just a bit red. Instead, what happens is I turn green like the Incredible Hulk, and I get angry about the situation. I'm so grateful to our techies for um, photoshopping my head, uh, sorry, Hulk's head onto my body there. I really appreciate them doing that. It's often said, isn't it, that in war, the best form of defense is attack, and that might well be true in war, but I'm not sure it's always the best response in everyday life. You see, in moments like the one I've just described, I'm not so much just embarrassed, but I become more so angry, and anger becomes the emotion that controls me. I'll show them how dare they do that to me, how dare they publicly humiliate me. I wonder if you can perhaps relate to what I'm saying. I wonder what you do when you stub your toe. Do you just say, ouch, or do you say something different? Or do you start looking for something, or better still, someone that you can blame for you stubbing your toe? You stupid chair. I hate you, chair. Smash. Which stupid person left this stupid chair here in the first place? In my life experience, my res response is rarely, oh, I'm such a silly sausage. <laughs> Why did I walk into that inanimate, well-lit object in the middle of the room? Anger is often the dominant negative emotion in our lives, even if it's not the most rational emotion for us to be expressing given the circumstances. In our family, if we get really bad customer service in a shop or a cafe or we go to a place to buy something and they've run out of that thing, we'll jokingly say on the way out of the shop, shall we tip something over on the way out? Now, of course, we never do it, but even that thought reveals something that's going on within our hearts, much deeper within. And that's where we find Samson today in our story. 
Samson is storming out of the shop. He's looking for something to tip over. Better still, he's looking for someone to punch in the face. Well, given our inclination towards anger, perhaps it's not surprising that Jesus had so much to say on that particular theme. But significantly, Jesus never says that the emotion of anger in and of itself is wrong. In fact, Jesus underlines the fact that anger is a necessary and a natural emotion. But the point where Jesus takes issue is when our anger becomes uncontrolled. It's at that point Jesus says anger is a dangerous thing. Anger can twist our motivations. Anger can cloud our decision-making. Worse of all, anger can cause us to harm other people. The often quoted verse from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, underlines this fact. Be angry, yes, but do not sin, says the Apostle Paul. He then goes on to say, doesn't he, don't go to bed whilst you're still angry, because if you go to bed angry, then tomorrow morning you're going to wake up angry as well. And that's the problem with Samson. He went to bed angry, and he stayed angry the next morning. Now, it probably won't surprise you to hear me say that there was a problem with Samson's anger. His anger was not the righteous kind. But in any case, I find myself wondering, well, what did Samson even have to be angry about? He was the one who went off and pursued a woman he shouldn't have pursued. He was the one who decided he was going to marry her. He was the one who ignored his parents' good advice. He was the one that ignored God's best in life for him. He was the one that went off and taunted the Philistines with that ridiculous riddle. He was the only one, in any case, who knew the secret to the riddle. He was the one who chose not to tell anyone about it. Samson was the one who gave the riddle away. He was the one that called his wife a heifer and let his wife go at the altar to go on a killing spree. He's the one who burned all the crops in the villages with the foxes. You see, Samson's become really mad at the world, but the reality is, is that this mess is of his own making. It's so easy, isn't it, to find ourselves living permanently in that place when life doesn't go our way, blaming others for our excrement, our muck, our manure. You choose whatever word you want to put into that sentence. It's so easy to get angry at the world when the reality is we should be angry at ourselves. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you this morning over some particular issue. I wonder this morning whether you can think of something you're angry about, someone you're angry with, and God would challenge us this morning to look in the mirror. Now, we should say, shouldn't we, that so much good has happened in the world because of anger. Anger can be a very efficient motivator for good. Anger can be a problem-solving motivator for injustice in the world. Haven't we seen that in recent years? And yet, far too often, we allow our anger to boil over and to make a mess and to leave destruction in its wake. At this moment in Samson's life, in his story, anger is his permanent life state because of his own unwise decisions and because of his inability to make wise choices. The thing is, although Samson's sin does eventually lead to his end, and you'll know that if you know the end of the story, the reality is, is that Samson's anger does not need to continue if only he would positively use the strength that God was abundantly seeking to supply him with. But sadly, that's not what happens. It gets worse. Let's read on. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi, 
The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come uh, to you to tie you up, to hand you over to the Philistines. Swear to me that you won't kill me yourself, said Samson. Agreed, they answered, we'll only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him up with two new ropes and led him from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like a charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of donkey, he grabbed it and he struck down a thousand men. And then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramath, Lehi. So Samson found this fresh donkey jawbone that was conveniently lying around on the ground and he struck down a thousand men. This is a, a Jackie Chan, karate kid kind of a moment, isn't it? This is the extreme version of tipping something over as you storm out of a shop. Now, it's really obvious from the story that Samson should in this moment have immediately given glory to God for his fighting prowess and for his strength in this moment, but he doesn't. Once again, he starts to boast about his greatness with a ridiculous riddle about making his enemies look like donkeys. I mean, what is it with Samson calling everyone after animals? His wife is a cow, his enemies are donkeys. And of course, all of this is fueled by a really large helping of pride. Samson's pride will simply not let God be the main character in Samson's story. And that's what pride does. That's what pride does in my life. It's what pride does in your life. It stops God from taking the glory that God deserves. Well, since it's come up again in this section of the story, let's deal with that theological conundrum which I skillfully avoided if you were with us last weekend. Samson's behavior is troubling, isn't it? But, but perhaps equally troubling is that he seems to do all of the things that he does using the gifts that God has given to him. Once again in our text today, just as happened twice last weekend in Judges 14, we discover Samson committing sin under the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Samson is committing sin under the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Of God. Now, I don't know whether or not that sentence troubles any of you in the way it troubles me. Why? Because it doesn't seem to square with the God that I thought I knew. But I do want to say very clearly and underline this, the problem is with Samson, it's not with God. It's with Samson, it's not with God. In verse 14 onwards of our text today, it says this, the Philistines came towards him, the Spirit of God came on him in great power, he spotted a fresh donkey jawbone. It makes me laugh every time I read it. I don't know why. And he used it to kill the whole company. Now, one of the reasons why these verses cause me to do theological gymnastics has to do with the dramatic way in which Samson's birth was announced. Do you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? Christine dealt with it so well. You'd have thought that given the drama and given his calling, Samson would have lived a much more righteous life, that Samson's life would have ended far less tragically. But there's an unexpected lesson in Samson's story, and it's this. 
Samson's sinful pursuit is ultimately used by God. It's not caused by God. God knew it was going to happen, but ultimately it is used by God. God was able to work through Samson's sin in order to accomplish a much bigger purpose for his people beyond even the character of Samson. This is Romans 8:28 stuff, isn't it? In all things, even the rubbish, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things work together for God and for good. Sometimes when it looks like things are falling apart, they're actually falling into place. You see, in spite of Samson's disobedience, the Spirit of God would come upon him time and time again. And as the Spirit of God came, it would enable him to accomplish accomplish these incredible feats of strength. But as we're going to discover in the weeks ahead, Samson never, ever escapes the consequences of his own sin. Now, as we've heard over the last three weeks, throughout Samson's life, he kept on manifesting the signs and the symptoms of sin sickness. But over and over and over again, God's lavish grace would come and God stuck with him. In Samson, we would find, find a redeemed man, even though he constantly got entangled in sin and he stumbled again and again and again. Now, I can relate to that. I hope you can too. What's true for Samson was true, dare I suggest, for you and I, and that's good news. That even though we wear royal robes that we don't deserve, still God in his grace is able to use us for his plans and for his purposes. Without God's grace, I am hopeless. Now, to even begin to make sense out of all this, we need to understand what's been going on in God's people long before Samson ever appeared on the scene. You see, there was a necessary confrontation that needed to happen between the Philistines and the Israelites, God's chosen people. Why? Because the two had essentially become one. God's people had compromised themselves again. Do you remember that word from two weeks ago? And they were virtually indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. So God uses Samson to be this necessary wedge that would be driven in to divide Israel from the Philistines, to free God's people from their pagan influence. You see, Samson's tragic life is proof that God in his sovereignty can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. God is sovereign. God is in control, no matter how things may look. Two Sundays ago, we we heard from Judges 13 that an angel appeared to Mrs. Manoah and told her that her son Samson would be used for a much greater purpose, that he'd been chosen to be a judge even before his conception. Judges 13, verse 5, he's been set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, that word begin, I think, is really important here, because it reminds us that Samson is a, much, um, is a small part in a much bigger story that eventually would find its fulfillment in Jesus. Samson's story is very much the beginning, it's not the end. That was Samson's charge. That was always Samson's greater call. This is the good work that God had already prepared in advance for Samson to do. Samson was to be this wedge that began to counteract this assimilation, this fusing together of two nations who simply should never have been fused, to begin to pry the Israelites away from their pagan invaders. And our Christian lives are lived out in exactly the same beautifully complex theological tension. 
It's two sides of the same coin, if you like. On the one hand, we have a freedom to choose, and on the other hand, we have God's absolute authority over all things. And somewhere in the middle of that mix, God's grace, thankfully, is always at work. Is God God completely in charge of all things? Yes, he is. Does God give us free will in all circumstances? Yes, he does. Do the people have to answer for their choices? Yes, they do. Is God's grace always at work? Hallelujah. Yes, it is. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Our walk with God is always the same. God calls us. God equips us. We respond always imperfectly. That's sin. And God, in his grace, is somehow able to do something with the mess. This is Romans 8, 28, lived out in the real world. And we see this tension tangibly in the story of Samson. And in fact, we see it in nearly every other Bible character that's described with the exception of Jesus as well. And I see this lived out in my life. We feel this tension in our own lives. Does God have a great plan for Samson's life? Yes, he does. Does God give to Samson every resource that he needs to fulfill that plan perfectly? Yes, he does. Is Samson a perfect human being without any flaws? No, he isn't. Does Samson have free will, the ability to make right and wrong choices? Yes, he does. Is Samson some kind of a a robot or a puppet on the hand of God? No, he isn't. Does Samson exercise his ability to choose freely his actions? Yes, he does. Does Samson always honor God in his choices? No, not always. In fact, rarely. Did God make Samson sin? No, he didn't. Does God ever in this story condone Samson's sin? No, he doesn't. Did God know that Samson was going to sin? He's sovereign. Yes, he did. Can God take the mess which Samson makes and do something good with it? Romans 8, 28. Yes, he can. Is God ultimately in control? Yes. You see, somehow in all of this, God's sovereignty and Samson's free will and somewhere in the mix of all of that, God's grace work together for a greater good. Will Samson be held accountable for the wrong choices that he made? Yes, he will. Join us next week and the week after to see exactly how. You see, God's willingness to allow us to disobey does not diminish his sovereignty. Now, I've done a really poor job this morning of explaining all of this, but if you want to know more, can I suggest you pop to Moorlands and do a degree? Uh, You then go on and do a master's, and after that, you do a doctorate. And if you've got some spare time, read this small systematic theology book from beginning to end, and you still won't have a clue. God never violates our free will by controlling our actions or our thoughts. He might well arrange circumstances to help us see the wisest decision, but the decision is still ours. Now, as I draw to a close this morning, I want us to return to the story to see the significance of one tiny moment in the story, one tiny moment. You see, verses 18 to 20 of our text remind us of the power of a good moment today to change our tomorrow for the better. Listen to how chapter 15 ends. Maybe there's just a glimmer of hope that Samson, after all, does have some humility. Verse 18, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Wow. He's pointing glory back towards God. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now must die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he was revived. So the spring was called some unpronounceable name and it's still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, given Samson's journey up to this point, it's miraculous, isn't it, that these words even appear in the text. Perhaps these are the most poignant words in the whole of his story. Samson says to God, you, God, it's you, God, who have given your servant this great victory. For just a moment, all the self-promotion is gone, and God responds And he deals with Samson's thirst, he renews Samson's strength, and then the text says he went on to leave for another 20 years. When you return to God, your strength will return, but actually it won't be your strength, it will be God's strength, making your weakness strong, and you will be revived. In Samson, we discover, after all, even with all the mess and the destruction that's behind us, we can still be the person that God created us to be, if only we'll return to him. Your past really does not need to define your future. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Your past does not need to define your future. As that was true for Samson, it's true for us. Verse 20, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Let's pause for a moment. It would be so easy to read over verse 20 and not give it that much attention. But in fact, this is the first really good news in the whole of the story. Because in one short verse, in a few words, it captures 20 years of Samson's probable faithfulness compared to the life that he'd been living. Samson had just had an experience. He'd just had a short moment with the living God. And he was revived, he was refreshed, and suddenly he's back on the right track doing the job that he was created to do. And one verse summarizes it. The power of a good moment today to determine our trajectory tomorrow. How do we know that Samson probably had a good 20 years? Well, he's listed in the Hebrews 11 uh, story of the heroes of faith. He's there. He's there even with all of his brokenness. Now, of course, we should say that the opposite is also true, shouldn't we? One bad moment can also send us spiraling downwards again. 20 years of walking with God faithfully is no guarantee for the next 20 years because one short moment actually can send us on a downwards or an upwards spiral. Samson's life proves that. You see, Samson didn't ruin his life all at once. He ruined it one step at a time. And next Sunday, Lawrence is going to uh, pick up the next bit of his story, which is 20 years on from the moment we're in today. And the opening words of our text for next weekend is so significant. It says, one day, 20 years, and then one day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. 20 faithful years, and then one day. Why, 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 Delilah? (laughs) Your past does not need to define you. Is God in control? Yes, he is. Does God give us free choice? Yes, he does. Will we always make the right choices? No, we won't. Does God lavish his grace upon us when we come back to him? Yes, he does. This is good news. Let's be still together.